So today we're going to be talking with Mike Taravella over at Rand Partners. You may know them better behind the two founders' names, Jake and Gino. Mike is the asset manager. He's actually the one really running the show, and I'm sure he'll, uh, he'll definitely tell you that too. Uh, but Mike is managing over $100 million in assets, and so there are any number of lessons that we can learn from somebody that's doing that. He had a background uh, in accounting before he got into asset management. And today we're gonna to dive into how he goes about finding deals and how they underwrite them, how they make them make sense. So Mike, what is going on, man? That was a brief introduction, but tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so thank you so much, Tyler, for even having me on this platform, I'm super excited. Uh, you know, you always bring the pain when it comes to real estate. <laughs> and so uh, a little bit about myself is I'm originally from Michigan, went to Michigan State. Family members told me to get the safe job, which I think everyone who's watching this or is listening to Tyler has been in that path. Uh, I was good with numbers, uh, I, so, and I wanted to do business, so I figured accounting was perfect. Uh, I worked for Ernst & Young for two years, phenomenal experience, just eating the financial statements, being an auditor, and seeing how all these numbers are derived. Uh, but I realized uh, it wasn't quite for me. So I went across the street and worked for Dan Gilbert, the owner of Quicken Loans and Cleveland Cavaliers. And I was just in charge with a lot of the startups. So the background of accounting and the processes to the tech startup, helping them build the process is what I really loved. Uh, but what really transitioned me into multifamily was I was telling these founders and CEOs how to scale their business but I wasn't scaling my real estate business. So I had two single families and realized, hey, I need to do multifamily. Uh, so met someone on Bigger Pockets, and like you do anyone you meet on the internet, you go to their big meetup, their annual meetup, and uh, I learned so much that I committed that I'm, I'm all in my multifamily. So I studied a year for a year, volunteering to sponsors, uh, until I got the call to join the RAND it's about two years ago, moved to Tennessee. And, uh, you know, because of that, we're here today to talk about commercial real estate and how to get involved and how to help and uh, learn the numbers. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Well, I, I appreciate you hopping on. So that's that's pretty cool. So, so you ended up really falling into real estate through a meetup. I mean, let's let's unpack that a little bit. What was the what was the first meetup that you went to and, and what was that like? Yeah, so the first meetup I went to was John Kasman had his first event, uh, the the uh, event in Chicago. It's about a couple hundred people and about half the crowd has done multifamily. And I was eager to get into the space. I had no knowledge, uh, but I like to think I'm a charismatic accountant. And so I was super happy to just meet people, connect people. And I think, you know, as a new person, people get weary of how to add value. So I was just connecting people at the event. I'm like, oh, you're looking to do this. I know someone who's looking to do that too, and I can help scale. So it just allowed me to be in circles that I never even could fathom. I just thought you had to be the millionaire, rich family office, buying apartments. Uh, and I realized that it's very attainable as long as you have the team around you. So it's a really large event and it just changed my life because I moved from Michigan to Chicago within four months because I realized the circle that I developed in Chicago was the place where I could be and learn and flourish. So 
Uh, from there, my first week in Chicago had four other meetups. Uh, so I went from one really big event to four meetups all throughout the city of Chicago because I knew I needed to absolutely overhaul my network. And people thought that I, when we lived in Chicago for months, I was like, no, that was my fourth day in Chicago. So uh, I just tried to learn by networking and just connecting people and learning and just helping add as much value as possible by add, connecting people as best as I could. And, you know, every once in a while, I would try to underwrite deals for them because just my background in Excel knowledge, I figured I was pretty good at that. <laughs> yeah, that certainly doesn't hurt at all, right? I mean... <laughs> That's, uh, that's pretty interesting. You know, everybody talks about like, you've got to find a way to bring value to the guys that are already established in the business that are where you are, where you want to be. And you found a, what I would say is a non-traditional way of doing that, just connecting other people. I mean, that's pretty valuable. Yeah, I think, I think everyone tries to be a know-it-all in this time, even if you're new, right? I, I pretend to, I want to put myself in rooms that I know the least because then you're learning, but uh, I just know I'm very personable. I can build rapport very quickly. Uh, and I know Tyler, I'm sure you get hit up with many times of how can I add value to you, Tyler? And then what that does for you, the person you want to help is you are giving them one more job. I'm sure you know, everyone's going to say more deals, more money. But then what happens is when you give a deal, uh, one, you've already seen it probably because it's on market. And two, you have to trust a stranger's underwriting, which is absolutely terrifying. So uh, I tried to make days of, I'll never forget, this guy gave me his, he goes, Mike, I'm trusting you with my last business card. You have to make it count. And I literally connected, because of that one business card, I connected him with four other Milwaukee investors. And uh, he didn't regret it. And he'd remember that before I left Chicago. So for me, I just, I can meet a lot of people, remember their names and uh, just, you know, help people solve their problems. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the biggest things about real estate is it's just meeting people. It's who, you know, it's your, your network is your net worth. I mean, that's, that's a very prevalent saying that really holds true uh, in this business. So what originally drew you to real estate? I mean, coming from the accounting background, you know, I would imagine there are a few numbers, of course, that, that translate and move over, but real estate's somewhat risky for your average accountant. So what, uh, what, what attracted <laughs> you to it? Uh, so I started, I think the biggest change was I started a screen printing business in college and that changed the game for me in the entrepreneurial environment. Uh, we did 20 grand in sales in nine months. Wow. It also helps when you're an upperclassman and you know all the leaders in the student org. And all the student orgs on top of across three different colleges, so that helps. Uh, but for me, it was like, whoa, I can, I can turn an $800 printing press plus some materials and a lot of sweat, <laughs> sweat equity and make money. It wasn't a ton, but I was like, wow, I did a lot of sales. So... My accountant, my professor, Isabel Wang, I always shout her out because she goes, you're not going to like accounting because your risk tolerance is very high compared to <laughs> other accountants. But see, and that makes like, what sense. What do you mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, what do you mean? Like, what is, like, I was just like, I had no idea. And then literally when I just realized I would work 80 to 100 hours a week in public accounting, uh, which I wouldn't change because they just gave me so much knowledge and experience. 
But then I was like, I'm not making any more money. And the only way I can make more money is I work a hundred plus even more hours to get a higher utilization, to be a higher performer. Like you were just rewarded by working more in public accounting. And I was like, I need to make money by not working. Uh, stumbled across bigger pockets uh, because I believed in like you needed I needed a venture that I believed in could survive any uh, recession. So real estate, people need homes. And I was like, well, I'll find a place. So it took me six months on the weekends. I'm taking calls at work with a buddy of mine that I partnered with him because he had a little more time and got a single family. And of course, my family was super supportive by crying and telling me that I'm going to lose all my money. And this is not <laughs> how they expected for me to Perfect. buy the first home. Yeah. So it was just, you know, the traditional, no, no one really understood it. I had coworkers say who would do business with you. Why? Like I had, I heard all the negative things, but I knew I was going in the right direction because the risks got crazier and crazier. Well, what happens if a tornado takes your home? And I'm like, well, at that point, uh, I chop it up as a loss and hopefully insurance covers it. But I knew I was solidifying a lot of the risk by the crazier what if scenarios. So, uh, bought one in uh, 2015 or 16, bought another one in 17, and then I realized I'm helping a lot of businesses, but I'm not helping myself by like help teaching people how to scale. So for me, it was just, okay, well, why not scale the real estate? Because I'd have to wait an entire year to do single family to get enough capital to do the next one. And I was like, this is too too slow. And I didn't. I knew I didn't have the time to wholesale because I knew that was just a, you know, constant wheel you can never really get off of. So uh, I just took the buy and hold strategy, went to multifamily and did the 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. shift for about months. And uh, it was tough. But uh, for me, I was just so passionate to not do accounting. I was okay sacrificing it. Uh, looking back, I'm sure I could <laughs> after uh, I did a the best ever conference and I did that for you know, four hours of sleep for a month and I slept 42 hours in three days. So not the best for longevity and health, but wow. I was just that passionate to not do accounting anymore. Well, I mean, that's pretty fair. It, it's pretty daunting to realize that you're trading time for dollars. I feel like that's the reason so many people get into real estate is that they're, they're trying to do everything that they can to, possible to escape that. I just had a call with my buddy, Ryan Stackhouse. He and I, he's one of my partners in the tower that we just, we just bought out in Chattanooga. And he almost exclusively invests in triple net deals where he doesn't have to do a single thing other than collect mailbox money, right? And I mean, it's not true. Of course, he's working out more than or he's working more than that. There's but, always more to it, but in yeah. short. But but he works. You, he you works a building in its least. Yeah. And, and he works 20 to 25 hours a week because he wants to. And some weeks he'll work 40 or 50 hours and some weeks he'll work 10. But that's the lifestyle that you that real estate affords you. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. Yeah. To your point, uh, I remember my last day before I put my notice for the big four uh, were at an event of how this group uh, made the company a ton of money. And I'm like, we're at an event where there's like two hot and ready pizzas per table. And we're literally someone's presenting about how much this one group like helps bring in the company. I was like, this helps like the top of the chain. And I was like, 
it just felt so backwards and I, and I'm working so hard and they called it the golden ticket of experience because I work really hard for five years. I get promoted to manager. And if I stay even longer, I could be a partner. And I just saw the partner lifestyle and I was like, uh, it wasn't for me because I just saw for six to eight months of the year, they would work a lot and not see their families. And for me, it was, uh, I wanted to do something different. I didn't mind risking it. Um, to go into real estate, you know, not making as much as I would in accounting, but I know long-term I'm betting on myself to outpay a salary and passive returns. And I get to, I mean, let's be honest, I wouldn't be doing a podcast in March before tax season. So, uh, and get yeah, to meet people like you, Tyler. <laughs> so uh, I think it's a fair trade and I just uh, love it. And I think my friends are starting to realize it, but even then they're still like, what do you do? Even my mom's telling me real estate's super risky to invest in. So it's just like smile, nod and move on. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. Okay, mom, I totally agree. It's super risky. Um, exactly. so how did you, how did you get hooked up with the Jake and Gino guys? I mean, they're, and, and give us a little background on them and their shop. Yeah. So, uh, I'm not going to lie. A mentor reached, saw that my mentor of mine saw one of the team members said they were hiring on an Instagram story. And then I get wow. a call on a Wednesday. Hey, would you move to Knoxville to do real estate? I'm in Chicago at my job and I just go, yes. And literally wow. that was the only context I have, which I respect even more because that's just how I operate. I'm like little context, like let's go. Uh, and then they're like, have you heard of Jake and Gino? I'm like, eh, kind of sort like, you know what I mean? Like I've heard of, I've heard their podcasts. I, I'm not gonna lie. I listened to th maybe three podcasts before their podcast before joining the team. And my interview was the, I thought the worst interview, uh, I ever had because it was 10 minutes long, uh, in true New Yorker style fashion. I had like a trifold behind me and I got ripped up because someone thought Jake, I thought, thought I was in the bathroom of my work. Gino thought I was in a sushi bar. Uh, and literally it was the shortest interview, no real technical questions. They're like, hey, are you good? And I was like, oh man. I literally called my girlfriend and go, uh, it didn't go well. And then 12 hours later, so that was Wednesday. Uh, Wednesday found out, Thursday was the interview. Friday found out I got it. And uh, three weeks later moved down to Knoxville uh, to join the dream team. Uh, so yeah, it was a, a weird, weird couple of weeks, but I think with anything, if you know what you want, uh, just execute, you'll figure out the details. I mean, I slept on an air mattress for a couple months, just trying to figure it out. Um, but go for it. And then just kind of shop wise. I mean, I, we recently built out our headquarters at one of our properties. So I have to walk four doors down to headquarters. Um, but we have about, we're vertically integrated. So we have our own property management company, which I think is a really good point of differentiation because you don't grow as quick, but you're sustaining that growth and always having people because property management is what truly makes or breaks a deal because I could write in a spreadsheet all day the 20 IRRs and pie in the sky dream. But if your property management team can't execute, uh, dead in the water. So, uh, every morning I just have a huddle with our property management team. Uh, it's a regionals and area manager. So I'm getting a glimpse of the whole portfolio, what's going on. Uh, and generally underwriting deals in the morning, 
uh, in the afternoon, cold calling owners uh, and talking to brokers. And, and then after that is kind of onboarding investors. And then usually on month end, we do monthly statements or preparing quarterly webinars to just keep our investors in the loop. Uh, during COVID, uh, I just knew no one wanted to be sitting and watching the news. So I opened up like office hours on a Zoom of any investor of ours who wanted to chat or ask questions, I was happy to. And then uh, just believe in absolute transparency. Uh, collections reports are available. So we're just like, I love the numbers and because they tell a story to me and I just want to help other people know and understand the numbers so that they can be even better investors. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty important having a good property management team and and but you also have to understand the numbers, right? It's it's kind of this this beautiful dance between the two of what's going to make sense and and what won't. Um, hey, Shafan, thanks for uh, thanks for joining the the live chat. I appreciate that. Good to see you. Um, so, Mike, tell us a little bit about the the day to day of an asset manager. I mean, what is your role within the company? Yeah, so my role is just to make sure we're going in the right direction as an entire organization. Um, so I can, we have, I think the biggest thing if for an asset manager is to make sure you understand, you set up systems uh, on weekly and monthly basis and even annual so that you know you're going in the right direction. So to get a little out more granular on a weekly basis, we have a pulse document uh, that showcases our weekly physical, our occupancy, our delinquency, and then other key metrics like our marketing um, turns and all that stuff so that we can really just see at the top level what's going on. Um, because I think just it's ever moving and you want to make sure that you, if there is a problem, one, you can call it out and two, you can course correct it uh, because the last thing you want to do is wait in the whole month and go, oh man, I didn't hit our numbers this month. Versus if you saw your occupancy was dipping, tweak the marketing. So on a weekly basis, just reviewing that, talking to property managers, make sure we're going the right direction. I hate, I hate the notion uh, that the asset manager manages the manager uh, because I have no business telling a property manager how to do what they do but I'm happy to hop on the phone and collaborate and find the best way to solve the problem, right? Is it, do we have to do Facebook marketing? Is there a rental assistance program? Like what can we do to help the property operate more efficiently and profitably? Uh, on a monthly basis, we're just reviewing our income statement and our budgets, making sure, hey, did we go over? Did we go under uh, our metrics and how can we improve? Uh, I think that's always the biggest thing is as a manager is asking really good questions of, is this a recurring instance? How could we have improved? How could we have made sure this didn't happen? Um, so you're just asking really good questions and the property managers are executing. And then on the annual basis, you're just making sure, you know, you're drafting new budgets to really, I think the budget is the most powerful tool in asset management because, you know, Tyler, you can underwrite something year one uh, but then year two, three, four, things are going to change. Taxes go up, uh, water bills in our one property went up 7% because uh, Kentucky said so. And I could sit here and just tell investors, hey,
Oh, Mike, are you there? Looks like we might have lost him. The asset managers and accountability officer because our investors will keep me accountable. Yeah, that's great. We, we lost you there for a second. Could, would you mind repeating that last oh. 30 seconds? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing for investors is that, uh, you know, as an asset manager, you keep the property managers accountable, but working together because if you don't and the business plans don't execute, your investors will keep you accountable and really let you know what's going on if they're not getting paid because they trusted you with their money and their capital. You got to make sure you're executing no matter what. Yeah, totally. I mean, you can't have that going on because, you know, if, if investors are, are the ones starting to ask the questions, you're probably not going to be in good shape. So you are currently managing $100 million in assets. What was the total assets under management when you first joined Jake and Gino? So we were approximately 85. I've been a part of 15 million in acquisitions and we recently got uh, it'll eclipse 20 be about $25 million. I'm trying to gun for the CCIM, Tyler. So I got a couple more million to go until I hit, can hit that mark yeah. and really get going on it. But uh, from small JV deals to syndications, uh, we've done it all from slight value adds that are management plays to turning 48 units that were shells because uh, they were vacant and the owners ran out of money. We've seen it. Um, so uh, yeah, and from Kentucky to Tennessee to pretty much every week. I'm uh, brokers know I'm always in the car. So they're like, Mike, are you actually in the office? And I'm like, lately I have been. So I'm planning the next road trip to property, do property tours. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It's uh, it's a good time of the year to go do it too, right? Cause now it's that, that spring cleaning time. I mean, it's, it's March 2nd as of the day of this interview. So uh, we're, we're about to do the, the exact same thing on our end as, you know, go out there and, and basically clean the winter off the properties. So, so you've been a part of $15 million in acquisitions. Uh, I mean, tell us about that. What's so, you know, you were fortunate enough to come into a, a clearly a well-oiled machine already, but adding $15 million to that well-oiled machine is not an easy feat. So what, what did that process look like? Uh, I think the biggest thing is just con passing the torch of continuing uh, acquisitions. But the acquisitions that we've done lately, uh, one of them was a three-week turn from seeing the property to closing. And so before, my biggest thing is if you can't plug and play players to do it, like, I think the entrepreneurs have a big mindset of like, I know how to do everything. But my biggest thing is how do I, how do we train like someone else who has no idea what to do, how to build it. So we've built checklists and everything else to really help uh, mitigate a lot of the errors and like the know-hows are, because like when it, when you take over a property, there's so many things, uh, renovations, turns, what units, who does what. And so literally from the first property, we had no checklist to now we're literally uh, in the midst of starting due diligence. And now I literally with a couple replace features in an Excel, I've updated our entire takeover list for a brand new property. And everyone's more involved. Everyone's excited. There's a lot more communication. So for me, it's, I'm just trying to build as many systems so that I can remove myself. I can remove Jake. I can remove Gino 
and we can build this machine that's humming, getting leads, getting properties. Uh, even our, our buddy, Will Coleman, who is part of our podcast, he goes, Mike is great at finding how to do it once and then trying to figure out how to never do the task again. So even my goal <laughs> this year is to never, never learn how to do it in the first place and just plug and play players like with virtual assistants and whatnot. So uh, yeah. it just, for me, it's building systems to, you know, continue the good thing going because that momentum is how investors and entrepreneurs succeed. But then it comes to a point of like, you're kind of hitting walls. You have, we have over 50 team members on, on staff. And so to onboard new people, it can be a problem. So I'm just trying to build as many systems as possible. So no one has to think what happens when we get a new deal. Yeah. I mean, those, those systems can make all the difference in the world, man. Uh, hey, AM is jumping in with a pretty timely question. Mike, what is your typical buy box? So what is your, what's your buying criteria? Yeah. So if we're established in a market, we're generally looking for 50 plus units because we already have the economies of scale where we can just kind of ancillary pick up. Uh, we're looking ideally 1970s and newer. We're trying to avoid 60s because they're just really old properties and they're going to get continue to get older. Uh, but 1970s and newer, if we're not in the market uh, already, we're looking for at least 100 plus units or rents higher enough to where we can have at least one or two team members on, on site all the time. Uh, and we're looking for this is the, the really good nugget to help really file in the list is household median incomes on average to be at least $40,000. Uh, we found in those mark in subtracts, um, it's harder to raise rents and just be affordable to residents in that market. And so that's a really quick way. There's a tool called, uh, if you Google geomap.ffiec, you can, you know, see what a broker gives you and really filter out very quickly. And I learned that having that kind of ace in the hole, it makes you seem a lot smarter when all you did was Google the address to the property. So uh, those are kind of the buyer's box that we really look for. What was that website again? I'm going to throw that in the live chat. Yeah, geomap.ffiec. If you Google that, it's like a clunky gov website, but the average household median income and it updates. So uh, 2020 is already up and it's, and it goes by the track. So it's really detailed. It's not just the city. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I like that. I mean, that, uh, that helps with no matter what kind of uh, buildings you're buying, just to be able to jump in and, and figure that out. So y'all are, uh, I mean, your portfolio is entirely multifamily. Have you considered or are there, you know, internal talks about diversifying into any other forms of commercial real estate? So Tyler, I think it might've been around your podcast, but we're looking at a, a mixed use in Chattanooga. And at first it was some pushback of no, but I'll never, I'll never forget what you said on our podcast of the multifamily guys want to buy it for just the price of what the multifamily is worth. Multifamily is worth but the commercial side will be the cherry, but it's, if you could blend it together, that's when you can really get it going. But uh, for us, I know there's beauty and staying focus. I know a lot of people are doing self storage. I've seen, uh, and that's for me, it, it's kind of ancillary. If it, if it's on the property, uh, mobile homes doesn't interest us as much because it's just very management intensive and we're really good at managing apartments, but I would love, uh, you know, Thanks to you, Tyler, to be 
completely honest, I would love to get a, a mixed use deal, uh, whether for me personally or the, the RAND team, because uh, I think everyone's going to need office space. I truly believe it because kind of how remarks people are quick to forget the bad times uh, and think the good times will live forever. So I think there's just a prime opportunity. So I'm trying to look for more mixed use, but uh, you know, who knows, right? I think it's just to be opportunistic in anything that can happen. Yeah, I've become such a big fan of mixed use. I mean, just about every project that we're doing now, even if it has a majority multifamily component or majority office component, um, there is some sort of mixed use aspect to it. I mean, the, the Chattanooga Tower that we bought, we're turning half of that into multifamily. The other, you, you know, I guess 40%, 35% will remain office space, and then we'll have a cafe and some maker space on the ground floor, and then we'll have a speakeasy in the basement. I mean, just think about how amazing those uses are playing off of each other because, you know, you'll probably be able to push the multifamily rents higher because you've got a cafe and a speakeasy. You'll probably be able to push the office rates higher for the same reason. The multifamily guys might use the office space. The office space users might, you know, hire new workers who want to go work in the, or who live in the multifamily. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of it. And also, like, it helps hedge your bet, right? I mean, all of these guys that owned, you know, pure office towers, I, I bet, you know, when, when COVID first hit, they were a little scared. I mean, it ended up not being as big of a deal as everybody thought it was going to be, but I mean, damn, if you thought that everybody was going to shift to Zoom and work from home, you'd be a little little worried. I mean, my girlfriend works for Audi and they had like a, they saved $10 million off their lease by breaking it. So uh, I think like you said, well, I think the biggest thing too uh, that you mentioned on our podcast is that by creating that speakeasy cafe, let's be honest, hipster haven, you're increasing the demand of that area. And so because there's an increase in that demand, people want to go there. People want to live there. So you're inherently increasing the entire value of that entire block, community, et cetera, to add value. So when you increase the value, increasing demand, increasing prices. So, uh, and I think too, it's just you, and I think too, just seeing what you, you and your team have done uh, inspires me to just create that visionary of like, huh. And even like that mixed use deals, like, well, there's a bunch of kind of businesses no one's heard, but if there's like a cafe shop plus a lunch spot, plus this spot, you know, no one's leaving this, you know, community. So, uh, you know, thanks to you, Tyler, uh, for helping inspire me as a just sole multifamily to think bigger, uh, still trying to figure out the weeds of it, but you know, that's kind of goes back to your net worth your network is your net worth of, I would have never thought of that if it wasn't for you and our podcast that we did on the Rantieri show. That's so funny. I love that. Uh, you know, the, so Ryan, who I mentioned earlier, he was the same, he was the same way. He was, he was all multifamily until he and I had a conversation a few years ago and he's sold, he's selling off all of his multifamily. He's moving strictly into triple net investments, which I think is pretty interesting, right? I mean, a guy who came from the residential and multifamily world, um, he's come to the dark side. So I think, um, I think, uh, I think you probably were at a, a, a coffee shop or a speakeasy and you're like, imagine owning this, not having to do anything, anything, and they will pay at you. All. 
<laughs> exactly. Just collect your rent. Um, AM is jumping in with another question. Tyler, when are you going to do your buy box video? I know I told you I was going to do that last week. I don't know when we're planning on doing it. It would probably actually be easiest on me if we just did a live stream and I walked through probably the last four or five deals that we did. And I could kind of show you what was attractive about them and why um, I ended up buying that. So AM, let me know if, if that would be valuable to you. Cause I mean, we could just jump on a live stream um, and I could, I could walk through uh, the the various deals that we've done. So well, plus two, Tyler. I think like the buy box is hard because as an investor, you want to have as big of a box and then kind of filter in because there's so many intricacies and value add opportunities that you can do. Uh, so the last thing you want to do, I've realized with investors, would be put in a box. Uh, but essentially, I know even for me on the multifamily, if it's a hundred units, send it to me. If it's 100 units in 1970s or newer, send it to me. They're like, what about this? I'm like, I don't care because I want to, I'd rather tell them build the relationship with the broker or the owner and decide like, hey, if this works, because uh, everyone has a price, but I think it just, you know, the, the story has to check out, if you will. And after underwriting a ton of deals, I think you realize the story is the most important thing on why they're selling. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's totally the case. We've had it's funny. I mean, this was this, this example right here is exactly why I try to avoid the like, give me your criteria. It, so a couple of years ago, we had a so I own a commercial real estate brokerage and, and that brokerage represents landlords, but it also represents tenants. So businesses that are looking for space. And this tenant told me their criteria and they were like, three to 5000 square feet, we want to be in midtown, you know, like this, this, this and this. Well, they bring me this property that was completely, you know, it was like 2,000 square feet. It was downtown. It was in a, like, it just, it didn't fit a single one of the pieces of criteria that they had given me. And they were like, this space is perfect. I'm like, well, I would have never found that deal. So, it, it, you know, it's, uh, I try to keep that as broad as possible to avoid the exact same thing that you have. Because you never know what kind of deal you look at and you're like, nah, yeah, maybe it's a little bit of a stretch, but. I think we can make it work. And that's the best part of being an investor is, huh, what can we do with this? How can we make this better, faster, more efficient? And so yeah. uh, it's the artist, the artistry behind it and not like the boring numbers of it. So uh, never put an investor in a box. <laughs> <laughs> Get that tattooed on me somewhere. Never put an investor in a box. <laughs> So, Mike, what is, uh, let's dive into some stories. I always love hearing the stories behind some deals. So, uh, what's the, what was the best? Let's start with the best one, and then I want to go into the craziest one. Like, the one that you just started uncovering a whole bunch of stuff. We were like, oh, my gosh, how are they getting what? I mean, we've all kind of seen some stuff like that, but what's the best deal you've ever done? Uh, so, I think the, the best deal I've ever done uh, I think it's going to be the first, the first multifamily uh, joining the RAND team. Uh, I was working with the team before moving off, you know, on the side, just looking at deals. And so I was just like underwriting, just getting a lay of the land. Cause I, for me, as, as anyone who underwrites, I want to make sure what they see is what I see because that, that training takes a long time. And so I just, you know, I was packing to Chicago, I was frantic, I was going to a bachelor party. And so when I come down the Friday before I started, I was like, well, I don't know anyone in Knoxville, so I'm just going to go meet up with the team. 
And so literally uh, the first deal, and I hate this story because it's like, oh, if you just believe it, you can achieve it. And so the first week on, on staff, we got the, the last deal I underwrote before joining and just seeing the process and just uh, because of that deal, it just was like, whoa, this can be done. And every day for eight months, I wrote, I will acquire a $5 million deal before uh, within two years. And then eight months, I did it. It was a $10 million deal uh, with our team. So uh, from there, uh, we on that particular deal, we cut a million dollars in expenses the first year of ownership. Uh, our property management team is by far the absolute uh, is the best. Uh, I always compare the scene of Pulp Fiction where uh, Samuel Jackson does his Ezekiel 25, 17. And we're like, if you don't pay rent, watch out because she's going to get that money somehow. Uh, so that I joke, but that team is just like humming. They work really well. Uh, and I think there's nothing like the first kind of multifamily or the whatever deal that you're looking for because then it just, it's the universe answering. Uh, but you know, it's always good to go to Lexington plus two. I like Lexington. It's a, a tight market because there's the horse farms surrounding the city. And so they can't grow out. So, uh, the hardest part about Lexington is getting in and finding more deals because it's a lot of local ownership uh, and they don't want to sell it because they know what they got. So, uh, it's been a great project. It's 143 units in Lexington. Uh, and it's, it's been humming, doing great couple for uh, plumbing issues, couple resident issues, but overall that team is absolutely resilient and they just make it happen every day. So uh, the property managers are what make my job super easy because yeah. they just kick ass and take names. <laughs> Aren't those deals the best? I mean, they, they, they make up for all of the ones where you just have to bash your head through a wall to get them done. And there's so many of those. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, even like I've had owner like, uh, seller say yes, and then a week later say no, and then just ghost us. We're like, what happened? Like, and like, I think there's times where I've submitted 12 LOIs trying to get the price. Uh, like, it's just like, it, it's a whirlwind. So uh, shout out to all the brokers and shout out to all the property managers because uh, oh, if there's no brokers, there's no deals. And if there's no property managers, be a lot more burned down buildings. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, coming from a background of both of those, I have some pretty thick skin when it comes to closing deals. We had, so in two weeks, I'm closing on the biggest deal I've ever done. It's a, it's an $18 million, 350,000 square foot shopping center. Um, about 14 minutes north of downtown. Yeah, thank you. Really excited about that. The funny thing is, I was I was negotiating on a property that was about the exact same size around the corner for over a year with this, this old man who just, ref, he basically refused to sell. I think it was one of those things where it was like, if he sold this property, it was kind of him giving up and he knew it was the end. And I was like, it's just one of those, like, uh, he, you can't get him to make a decision. So we would agree on a deal. And seven times we sat down at the, at the table to sign because he was old school. He wanted to sit down and sign the contract together. You'd sit down at the table and go to like, bring your best blue pen to, to sign the contract. And he would change the deal terms and go, we need to send this to my attorney for her to review uh, to make this right. And so seven times we did that in the course of a year. And I eventually just got so frustrated. I looked, I pulled up a map. I was like, oh. 
there's a property right around the corner that's just as big. Let me cold call the owners over there, did it, and here we are. So sometimes you just got to push through. Uh, uh, you got to push through the rough ones to to find the gems, right? As a CPA, that pains me because the first thing I think of is the lawyers are getting hella paid for just changing science. So I, I always, it's, I mean, I love our lawyers, but I just think of stories like that. And I just think of like the lawyer bill went up seven X because of nothing. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, look, my, my attorney <laughs> is one of my really good friends, but I also don't want to pay him $5,000 to, 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 for me to not get a deal. Right. It's like, man, it's so frustrating. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. oh, AM's jumping in with yes, yes, yes on the, uh, should I do a, a live stream with my buying criteria and the projects we've done? So, AM, I'll, I'll do that. We'll, we'll figure that out probably in the next week or so. Um, we'll dive in and make that happen. All right, Mike, that was a, that yeah. was a good story of a, of a good project. What's maybe, maybe not even one that you've bought. Maybe one you're like, we, we can't even buy this. But what's a crazy story about a property? I mean, being on the pro seeing the property managers, uh, there's a lot of stories. Uh, we found an alligator in the unit. Uh, like, I'm oh, sorry, like, like somebody had just placed an alligator in this unit, or it had stuck. Like they in were something. raising a baby alligator in, in one of our properties in Tennessee. So they're like, and we're like, hey, uh, like literally, our huddle was just found out. Need to know having alligators is absolutely illegal in tennessee because it's an exotic pet and we're like like i would have never like i would have never known the alligator rules and laws of tennessee if it weren't for that but, okay but we've got um, i've got to know i've got to know more about this i mean did they walk this thing on a leash or is it just like hanging out at home in the bathtub uh i think this one so this the same resident had like an entire wall of snakes spiders uh like in uh their like ca not cage but like uh like the glass like a terrarium uh, oh my god yeah and so then this he it was like a good sized and so the only reason we knew is because we had to go in for a maintenance thing like we do water checks huh. that's why you do that at least this once a quarter <laughs> Absolutely. So that was like the fun, the fun, bad story. But I think just to, you know, I don't want to say you, you make money on the buy, but like really know your areas. Cause I mean, we've, uh, you know, we had a property, it was an older build. Uh, we scoped the pipes, uh, but anyone buying in the sixties, just know what you're buying into and have a ton of money in CapEx. Uh, we had residents who would consistently pour grease down it. Then there was leaks. Uh, and then it's just like, it's a, and because the area it's in, it wasn't a really good area to attract um, employers. So we had like, I think it spent a million dollars in turnover. Uh, so we, we got, we sold the property and made money on it. Uh, I, not as much as we wanted to or projected, but in the end, uh, those are just a lot of tough conversations and literally, uh, don't just do it, say you did it. But like, make sure you can sleep easy at night. Cause when you buy a nightmare deal, you will lose sleep. You will, uh, it's like waking up to a nightmare every single day. And so for this particular property, it was just really tough because uh, it was older. So you have to invest more and you have to invest more time. And we didn't have the people, like, it's just like, it was a, I don't wanna say a death spiral, but it was just a lot of things that 
uh, we weren't doing like our Tennessee, we felt comfortable in, but like being in, you know, Louisville four hours away is much harder. Um, we ended, I'm, you know, sounding really dramatic. We did like a 12 IRR. So it wasn't like, it was a good deal, but if it was just really rough and really management intensive. So if buying the biggest lesson, if you're buying older, make sure you have the proper management in staff that has experience with it and make sure you have a ton of money in CapEx. Uh, we're, we believe in, you know, Bill Ham says it's the K-shaped recovery. So the B's and C's will, or the A's and B's will go up in value, but then the C's and D's will go down in value because there's just gonna be so much CapEx required to withstand and back to accounting, they depreciate much faster than the A's and the B's. So um, if new, I would highly recommend just partnering with people who have experience doing it, but also uh, have the pockets and the investor money. Cause the last thing you wanna do is under raise cause then you're not putting money into the deal. And then, you know, I've seen just a lot of bad deals out there where people are like, uh, they're pay asking for price per pound on stuff. And it's just, it's a death spiral if you can't inject money into your into your properties. Yeah, there's a reason that most multifamily investors have a 70s and newer criteria. I mean, the 60s and before, it's just an absolute nightmare unless you're really skilled in what you're doing and you know what you're getting into. You know, the worst, like, the worst story that I've got taking over a commercial building, you're not going to believe this. So uh, it's actually the, the literal office that I'm standing in right now. I bought this building 2019, so a little over a year ago. For four and, years ago? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the owner um, had a maintenance guy that was supposed to be like the property management slash maintenance guy. Um, he was letting him live on site in an office building. And so when I walked into the building, it smelled like cigarette smoke. All of the tenants were complaining that he was living in this suite and smoking in the suite. And every time I talk, this guy clearly did math. He was missing all of his teeth. Every time we hey, talked to him, he's like, energy. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just sugar, man. Uh, so he, every time we talked to him, he was like, no, nah, man, I don't smoke cigarettes. I don't smoke cigarettes. And of course, every time we walked in, like you walk past his room, uh, which was an office and it just reeked of cigarettes. Well, we ended up when I bought the building, of course, I kicked him out, right? Like it can't have a First of all, it's, it's not legal for him to be living in an office building. Uh, but second, I don't, I can't have that around my building anymore. So kicked him out and he left a bunch of his stuff in his uh, little apartment that he had. Dude was going to the bathroom in buckets and leaving them in his closet instead of walking three doors down to the end of the hall. So and then like when, uh, orders. <laughs> it was disgusting, man. And when I asked him about it, he started sending me, you know, text messages threatening that he was going to kill me. I was like, okay, cool. This is great. See, this is the stuff they don't tell you about being a real estate investor. <laughs> You're pooping in buckets. I don't think you are going to execute on your plan, but, uh, oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, you know, the, the, crazy thing like i mean the thing is though if he's crazy enough to be doing that he's probably crazy enough to come and stab me too so i uh just i kind of left that one stay where it was anyway getting a little sidetracked there but hey let's <laughs> let's dive into uh <laughs> let's dive into underwriting i mean obviously as an asset manager underwriting is a big part of what you're doing on 
the acquisitions, but as you said, mm-hmm. every year thereafter, you've got to you've got to make sure that you understand what you're getting into. So, let's talk about the acquisition front. I mean, how do you go about the underwriting process? Yeah, so I use Asana for absolute everything. Uh, for those who don't know what Asana is, the project management tool. And so, because we have like an analyst on staff and just working with our team. I want, it's kind of like hoarders of all the information I've ever compiled about this deal in one spot. And so on the acquisition side, I mean, I'm looking up the median income. I'm looking up if it's in the flood zone, you know, uh, linking, just seeing where rents are today and seeing where they, like where the competition is today. I think a lot of people get caught up of, okay, 5% rent growth because it was 5% the last three years. And it's like, okay, that's great. And I think when on, it's great that it was, but I like to Howard Marks's point, what, what comes up must go down. Um, so I just stress test year one to make sure if rent doesn't go, if we can't increase income at all, can we pay our mortgage with interest only? Because generally for us, we're getting a couple of years interest only on the front end. Uh, but I also stress test it too of if we don't get any interest only, does this thing's cash flow? Obviously, it's not going to look great, but does it cash flow at a bare minimum with our expenses? Uh, and I say our expenses because we have our own, but also property taxes skyrocket when you buy and you have that investors who's held it forever. The valuation is going to go up and your taxes are going to go up just as much. So, um, we just really make sure we stress test it and there's times where I just destroy it. And I, and to anyone who's new in underwriting, if you're getting a good stretch where every deal looks good, you're doing something wrong. I run, go to a point run right it, now or, or <laughs> yeah. check your underwriting spreadsheet. Something's broken. I delete it and start over. Like, yeah. Bad one. Like it's like a, like baseball. It just, if it's, if it doesn't, if it works, something's wrong. Or my like income is too aggressive, like, huh, my income went up 20% year two. And that's why it's where it starts making money. It's like, no, no, it takes a lot longer because uh, thinking about turning a unit, right? You have a resident in there, their lease doesn't expire till December. You know, so say you close today in March, uh, congrats, you closed the deal, but you're underwriting, you're like, I'm gonna turn all the units and getting them leased out at market rents. Okay, so on the 40 units, that's 40 units, and you have to get, you know, go through each, you know, every month, go 90 days out to give them notice. And then it's just like, it takes so long. So it's, you know, with COVID, our supply chains, we like, we can't get windows in. I've heard some people can't get appliances in. Uh, even on like heavier turns, it takes two months as it is. Right. And that's with our internal team. Sometimes it takes sometimes longer just to get everything and run. So you're looking at a process where it could take you probably like in March, you get them out, you know, get the resident out in June, then it's August and then it doesn't, it can potentially not rent in September. Uh, so it's just like, I think people are very aggressive. They're starting off of like, oh, I'm just going to gas rents to market rents in a year because that's what Excel told me to do. Uh, so there's like, it, what you show your investors is not what you look at internally. And what you look at internally is not what you show your insurance company. Uh, because 
Because and your lender, right? So there's just so many different instances of just yeah. like what to do. You want to give like your realistic case. Like I don't want to tell my investors like this is going to make double their money in two years because that's probably not realistic. But yeah, I mean, you you uh, want to overpromise sure. or underpromise and overdeliver. You definitely don't want to overpromise, underpromise and overdeliver. Exactly, because that's the thing is like it's worse. I think investors, it's hard too because. Uh, the prices have gone up. Uh, investors' criteria to invest hasn't really gone down. So you're still looking at really high returns to the investors. And it's like pretty favorable. I mean, we're offering an 8% preferred return historically. So the 8% of first cash flows goes to them. And then from there, it's a split. But uh, I'm with the double tranches and everything else, it's just like, I'd rather have an investor who's like, I'm in or I'm out. It doesn't matter if I can first 10 in. And it's just, there's so many layers of complexity. It's like either in or you out. Let's ride this together. Because the last thing I want to do is have one group that gets paid, one group that doesn't get paid. And then at the very end, I don't get paid as an operator. Because it's hard. Like I've had investors come back to me on asset management fees. And I'm like, this is to pay my salary. Like, it's not like I'm getting the whole asset management fee and I'm like, peace out guys, I'm going to the Bahamas. It's like, no, no, I'm, I'm communicating on monthly basis, weekly collections reports, monthly statements, quarterly webinars, like on top of every property management meeting. So I'm like in it for you. And this, this little sum of money every month goes to cover my salary. Uh, so it's just like a lot of hard work and a lot of education. I, I love it. And I love our investors. It's just, uh, I want to make sure they have a good experience by, like you said, under-promising, over-delivering. And I think, uh, I think it's Sam Zeller, Ray Dalio, or how do I minimize the risk of it failing, right? Because if everyone's like, oh, 8% rent increases, every deal looks great. But how do I go if we can't get rents to increase? Is it other income that I can increase? Is it operationally I can cut expenses? What are those things that I know we can do and execute on uh, during, you know, let's be honest, we don't know what's going to happen in a year, two years, three years. We can speculate, but in the bad times, how do we cover our downside risk? Yeah, I mean, I've said this so many times. It's, it's I would rather be so conservative that I lose a deal than be so aggressive that I win one. Because, you know, and, and this always like kind of makes me a little, uh, I guess I laugh a little bit about multifamily. It's like multifamily, the way that the, the acquisitions work, it's a you basically submit your best and final offer. Right. So it's like whoever comes in with the best offer, whoever's the best potential buyer gets the deal. And so sometimes they pick you and you're like. Did I miss something that uh, all these other guys got? Is that why I was the highest price on this? I mean, it's, you know, so it's better to be conservative, honestly. Yeah, no, there's that excitement. And then you're like, oh, shit, how much did I overpay? Like, <laughs> yeah, like, what did I miss? It's like war dogs when they, like, overpaid or under uh, by, like, several hundred million or whatever it was. And it's oh, just man. Like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, like, and I think to multifamily, like, the biggest thing I've seen is uh, I've lost out on a deal personally, like a smaller unit over 10 grand to a group in Idaho that had an eight unit before. I'm like, and I've, I've lost deals to cash buyers in New York that were 1031. 
uh, and we've lost a 50 unit in Lexington to an institutional group that's now looking at 50 units. So they're just, uh, for those who are listening going, I'm never going to do a deal. You are, you just have to outlast a lot of people and it takes 10 years to be an overnight success. So you just got to keep grinding through in real estate and, uh, continue to grind through. That's so true in every aspect of real estate too. Like a lot of the older guys, when I first got started in commercial real estate brokerage, I was like, man, these guys are just here because they've been here longer than everybody else. That's the only reason that they're getting all these deals. Uh, there was one deal where I basically had to walk this guy through how to negotiate with his client to make the deal happen. And he was like 40 years older than I was. And it was just, it was remarkable. It just showed me like, yeah, you don't have to be the best. You just got to outlive the rest, you know? Um, and clearly he didn't read Open for Business by Tyler Cobble. Clearly, he did not read that. Come on, man. <laughs> Get on it. Learn how to negotiate. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny. I, uh, you know, there's, there's so many opportunities in commercial real estate that it's not worth forcing one single deal just to get one. You know, the, the people that usually say, like, oh, I can never find a deal. I'm like, okay, well, how many are you underwriting a day? Oh, I'm only doing like one a week. Okay, well, then that's your problem. You need to underwrite a deal a day. If somebody says I'm underwriting one every day. Okay, how many offers are you making? I'm making, you know, one a month. Okay, well, make one a week. It's like you've just got to up the numbers. It's a numbers game. That's all it is at the end of the day. You've got to look at every deal you possibly can so that you understand what a deal is. And then you've got to take action on that deal. I mean, Mike, how many, yeah. how many deals do you think that you look at for every single deal that y'all have acquired? So it's funny you say that because this year I broke it down. So like underwriting wasn't even enough. I broke it down to how many calls I was making to brokers and owners. And I can say as of today, March 2nd, 2021, this quarter, I've called, dialed over a hundred brokers. I've dialed uh, 1100 leads off like to, directly to the owner and have submitted 18 LOIs. And uh, we have one deal under contract. And to be honest, even before that, uh, we didn't have a deal. Our last deal we closed on was August 29th, 2020. So uh, I wasn't cold calling as much then, but I can tell you it's probably like several hundreds of broker calls to get probably 60 to 70 offers to get one deal. Probably even higher, probably 80. It's, so it's, I just, I mean, I just, kind of work. I ran the numbers on that. So you get a 1% conversion on the calls to brokers. Right. And that's that's just off the calls. We're not including all of the letters that you sent to everybody else and a, a 5% conversion based off of uh, one out of 18 offers getting accepted. So, I mean, look at that. Like Mike is working with one of the biggest multifamily groups in the state of Tennessee, and even they still have to go out and work the numbers. I think that that's pretty telling about how what you know and what it takes to succeed as a commercial real estate or multifamily real estate investor. Oh yeah. And that's not including, we said we've done a text campaign and that was 800 texts. Uh, so I think, I think the biggest thing that I see investors do is like people, when they hear about like RAND and how big it is, I look at us and I go, we're small. And I go, we're competing against like the UDRs, uh, these huge groups that literally they came back and emailed me go, no, no, we're paying cash for deals. So if you have any, let us know. And we're like, 
great. But uh, brokers don't know who we are because of our, our port, like our portfolio size. Because in the grand scheme of things, we're not huge. Uh, and so it's, it's how do we stand out to the brokers? Uh, and it's also the owners, right? Like, I don't want to be, it's, you know, you could do the mailers, like, but be who you are, right? So like when I head on a broker call or an owner call, I'm like, hey, you know, are you interested in selling? And they might say no, but at the same time, I might be like, hey, we're, I'm an operator too. Like, this is like, I'm not just a guy calling to find a deal. Like, Step, multifamily can be hard and so it's like hey i like let them know i'm a real person and i think uh sometimes it resonates uh but like you said it's it's grinding through the numbers because obviously it can take one and i don't want to say it just takes one because it's not real estate expectations to the listeners out there uh but you have to put a ton of work and if you're going to be in in nashville and east tennessee you're competing with me on top of a large groups that have a lot more resources. So you have to find creative ways that you can differentiate. Like it could be knocking on doors. Like you got to do something that no one else is willing to do to get a deal legally. I'm going to say that legally. But, <laughs> Very important uh, caveat right there. Yeah. But cause it's just like, it's so competitive. Like we're, we've done a lot of work and know a lot of the national brokers and we're not in Nashville. And looking at like co-star reports of who owns in Nashville, even the 50 units are really big groups. Uh, so it's just like, it's tough, uh, but it, it's not like I'm going to go quit and go do accounting tomorrow. I'm, I'm in it because I believe in myself to execute and win. And, you know, 2020 was like when you take a loss on losing over 10 grand to a cash buyer, it's very easy to go, well, that was fun. It was a hell of a run, but uh, it's, it's just makes the comeback story much better in the long run. Yeah. Now touching on the, uh, you know, ways to set yourself apart. I mean, so Bruce Peterson, who, you know, he and I have a, another podcast called commercial conversations over coffee, where, um, basically I just drink coffee. He drinks tea. So I, I don't know why we named it that, but, um, <laughs> we, we were talking about that one time on the podcast where he, um, he gets on a phone interview with with the sellers so that he can have that relation build that rapport build that relationship with them so that when it does come down to okay well you know bruce's offer was x you know this guy's offer was x plus you know a hundred thousand or fifty thousand or whatever it ends up being you know who are we going to go with who do we like who do we trust more who do we think is going to close I mean, that's, that's going to give Bruce a leg up. I mean, I, I think those little things make a huge difference when you're – because at the end of the day, you're, you're yes, you're competing over price, but you're only competing over price so much, right? Because it's almost like, okay, well, who's actually going to close? Because there are plenty of guys that can come in and give you a ridiculous price and then four months – you know, well, I guess multifamily doesn't last that long. You know, three weeks later, uh, while they're under contract, they try to retrade you. I mean, how often does that happen? Yeah, it's price plus probability to close. And and I know when we're competing with these bigger groups, we're not going to win on price a lot of the times. So I literally put in a PowerPoint of one of our properties that we turned from a shit, like a dilapidated shell and into a beautiful unit. So then they know like this property is going to be in good hands. And if someone, you know, the institutional group that, uh, paid more than us, 
like they I had the broker go that stood out to us of that 48 unit that you guys did right uh on our deal we were best and final on we didn't win uh but I put hey we're East Tennessee through and through we've donated 43,000 meals uh we like to grow that with our residents is it ever going to make or break the deal that we do that no but if someone it takes like someone could resonate with that and that we're we're here, we self-manage and we care, then who knows? That could get us a little bit of an edge that it's, uh, I don't want to say mom and pop because we're not that, but uh, we're, we're locals who care about the communities we invest in. So uh, you just got to, like you said, you got to do something a little bit different. Uh, and then obviously price helps, but I've talked to brokers and they, people didn't take the highest uh, price because their yeah. probability of closing was less than they wanted. Well, I mean, if nothing else, you know, those little details that you're sharing about yourself, if that gets you a seat at the table of the last three groups and you have another shot at making a run at it, that that did what it needed to. Right. Like maybe you still end up not winning, but maybe those things pushed you up to the table, whereas otherwise you wouldn't have even gotten a response, you know. Every no brings you closer to a yes. That's true. That's one of my favorite <laughs> sayings. Man, I used to sell Cutco, and that was the, fir the first time I ever heard that, that phrase was selling Cutco because every no meant a yes. And it, honestly, you do enough sales, and you start to realize, like, yeah, it's actually – it's probably true. Like, and I don't mean probably as in, like, maybe it's true. I mean, like, the probability of it being true is, like – you know, I close 75% of my deals. If I get a no, that means the next three I'm going to close on. It's just the probability of, of, of the numbers there. So yeah, and this is coming from a CPA who never did sales, except literally I, my buddies call me like the referral king of like, I, I was like, oh, I can't sell, but I'm always the one who's like, oh, use my referral code for that or this. Uh, and so I went like, probably last March, I was like starting to call brokers more intently and more intentionally to now I'm calling owners, brokers, and like my mantra, like I, I kind of go into a mantra of like, my phone will make me money. Of like, I have to like get dialed in of like, this phone will make me money. And literally for me, it's even if I get a no, I'm building a connection with an operator in the business. And I can, I, I talked to an owner, he goes, uh, I'm not interested, but I talked to him for an hour about, about having life insurance companies be your bank. So it's like, I learned so much from that, that if I just was like, oh, I'm, if you're not interested, like hang up, like you, you can learn so much. So it's just like, it took a long time to get in that mantra of like, Hey, I'm, I'm meeting new people. I'm connecting. Like, this is fun. Uh, Cause you know, in CPA, you talk to maybe three people a day at the very most. And you're like just grinding and coding working. So uh, going from that to just, calling that many people and building the machine it's it's a whirlwind but like i said by any means necessary just finding deals and making it happen yeah i love making those calls because if you approach it the right way everybody wants that phone call right i mean if somebody's going to call me and say hey tyler i uh you know i'm digging up a bunch of off market off market properties i want to know what you're looking to buy so i can bring you deals i'm like yeah hell yeah let's let's have a conversation right now let's start talking about this because that's that's something i want to hear about i mean it's it just depends on how you you go about phrasing it right i mean 
you, you got to approach well, even it. the wrong numbers can be fun when you have the right mindset to it you're like yeah all right like i've i'm like oh i am so sorry for calling the wrong number and people like i i've made that many calls and no one's like cursed me out like i'm just yeah. very overly polite and it's like you can still have fun with it you're like hey i'm working on my improv today yeah well i mean you can also just run with that and have fun with it too right it's like oh i'm so sorry i've got the wrong person are you interested in buying a commercial real estate though oh no okay all right well no worries i'll keep you on the list just in case you know you can have fun with it like it's uh you know once you've made i mean i've made tens of uh, probably tens of thousands of cold calls in my life there's some ptsd uh, behind that number oh yeah there's like you know that that shimmer in my eye is from this key light it is not from me looking back fondly on tens of thousands of 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 phone calls but um yeah you know the better you get on the phone right it's it's just it's all about how you come across and how you communicate with people um my fanatical prospecting is by far the best book i've ever like no one who's good at sales like this book gives you scripts how to use text how to use email like that book alone has made me a better like from a cpa who knows excel to a halfway kind of knowledgeable salesperson so uh buy that book if you're intimidated by it uh sales because it's all the scripts and super helpful and explains everything very well yeah it's such a good book i mean i've read it i've read it multiple times i i would highly recommend it as well well, Mike, appreciate you joining us, man. If uh, if anybody watching wants to bring you some deals, uh, what's the best way to, to get a hold of you? Yeah, you can email me at mike at miketaravella.com, T-A-R-A-V-E-L-L-A.com. Uh, my handle, too, is value add Mike on Instagram, Clubhouse, Twitter, dabbling more on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, Mike Taravella. Uh, even if you don't have a deal and we just want to talk multifamily real estate or, uh, you know, talk about Tyler's beard, I'm more than happy to have a conversation <laughs> and help you in your journey. You want to have a conversation with people about my beard? That's awesome. Uh, I'll take hey, it. Hey, man, you got to respect <laughs> greatness, right? Like we were saying before, right. you know, the voice of Vanderbilt, the beard of Tennessee, the or of Nashville, of I don't know what else, I don't know what else you could do. That's so funny. I, yeah. So for, for those of you who are wondering what Mike is talking about, I did a voiceover for Vanderbilt football this fall and it was, it was actually really cool. It was, that was a lot of fun. It was a good experience. Um, well, thank you to everybody that joined us live on the YouTube channel. Appreciate all the questions that you were asking. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the YouTube channel. If you're enjoying the content that we're bringing and if you're listening on the podcast, please leave us a review. It certainly helps uh, us to continue delivering this kind of content to you and everyone else around you. Mike, thanks again for having, uh, or thanks again. Well, thanks again for having us on your show, Mike. I really appreciate it. <laughs> thanks again for <laughs> no, coming Tyler, on thank you for the your, show. Thank you for your friendship, Tyler. I appreciate everything yeah. and everything you do. And like I said, we're going to take over Nashville together one day at a time. Let's do it, man. Let's go find a deal. We'll talk to you soon. Perfect. Sounds good. Bye.